Hey, everybody. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey, everybody. Host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has a real conversation with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they took action to understand this disease. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start Embracing the Journey and learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry, and they're snickering and tittering. And that makes this then stuff you should know. Yeah, we got sidetracked before talking about things that trickle. Names. Names that trickle. Yes. Like the famous race car driver, Dick Trickle. Is that a real dude? I swear to God. <laughs> look him up. I will. Don't image search. <laughs> Just look him up. <laughs> okay. Maybe I should specify race car. Yeah. Okay. That's a good idea. You're a Google master with your Google foo. Yes, and we, the three of us, are apparently all eight years old again. Yep. Uh, speaking of trickle, Chuck. Hey, happy birthday. Oh, be quiet. Jerry, you have a big mouth. You're always talking. Well, I usually remember, but I don't didn't today, so happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. And this will be out several weeks later. But. <laughs> right. I'll get to relive my birthday all over again. Exactly. Uh, thanks, man. Have you, Chuckers... Ever seen the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Yeah, I knew we'd go there at some point. In this one? Yeah. Because of Ben Stein? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. So you know the answer then. Something D-O-O, right. economics, anyone? Voodoo <laughs> economics? Yeah. When they're in econ class, the guy who says Bueller, Bueller, mm -hmm. that's Ben Stein. Remember he had that yeah. show, Win Ben Stein's Money? Mm -hmm. Which was really his money. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? I think so. That I think like that was like gimmick. legit, yeah. I think maybe like they gave it to him if it wasn't one or came out of a salary. Who knows? Probably. Um, but before that show came on, he was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off as an econ professor. And I believe he does have a degree in economics. He's also just a great actor and Visine Pitchman. But what he was talking about in there. No, he was Clear Eyes. Clear Eyes. Yeah. Thank you. Clear Eyes is awesome. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that sounded like uh, not Ben Stein. Yeah, well, that was my... It's as steiny as I get. Anyway, he was talking about voodoo economics. And voodoo economics was another name for trickle-down economics, a.k.a. Reaganomics. And the person who coined the term voodoo economics, do you know? John Hughes? No. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, George Bush Sr. Yeah, H.W. I remember that. Yeah, he, he was running in the primaries against Reagan in, in for the 1980 election Yeah, before he came on as his vice president. And he was deriding Reagan's economic policies, specifically his belief in trickle-down economics, yeah. as voodoo economics. Because there's some apparently some sort of magic to the whole thing that makes it work rather than 
sound economic principle. Yeah, it, it occurred to me today when I was studying this stuff that uh, John Hughes picked this very topic mm. to represent the most boring thing you could talk about. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. And uh, it took me a few times to, to figure it out because, you know, I don't, my brain doesn't skew toward understanding economics. It's it's tough to do. But I finally did. And I was like, you know what? It's not the most boring thing ever. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. And I'm, if I came around, that means anyone can. Now it's just our um, uh, our burden to make it interesting to everybody else. That's right. Which we've already failed at spectacularly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so let's talk about this idea. First of all, trickle-down economics. Um, we'll explain the whole thing in detail starting in just a moment. But we should probably say with the disclaimer, if you want to drive a fiscal conservative or a conservative economist or just a conservative in general crazy yeah mention trickle down economics like call what they call supply side economics trickle down economics yeah it drives them bonkers there's like there's no such thing as trickle down economics it's a derisive term it's um it doesn't capture the the spirit or the thought behind supply side economics which is what they've come around to call it yeah but back in the day it was definitely called trickle down economics and the whole point the reason why it was called trickle-down economics is that the idea behind it is if you place wealth with the wealthiest people, this idea goes, mm -hmm. they will take that money and invest it into the economy, which will get things running again. Yeah. And as a result, that economic engine revving up will create more wealth at the top that trickles down to the lower working and middle classes. Yeah, like who better to stimulate the economy than the super rich? And they will uh, like maybe open a business to put people to work, and then those workers will benefit and uh, directly from that investment that that person made. Right, so this is the it's whole theory behind down. it. We should also disclaim even further that economics as a field is so far from science, it's preposterous. Yeah. Um, most economic theory that you ever will run into from John Maynard Keynes or Adam Smith or um, Jean-Baptiste Say, yeah. um, these guys are talking about pure economies. Yeah. The United States, and I don't think there's any economy in the world that is a pure economy, yeah. a free market economy. The United States has things like tariffs and... Um, we have things like government intervention, tax policy, monetary policy. There, there's intervention in the market. So you can't ever say, we can't say really what causes recessions and what brings us out of them or yeah. whether trickle-down economics is effective or if it's not or if it is effective. Is it effective in the long run or the short run? And what about the opposite way? Is that effective in the long run or the short run? We don't know. People think they do, though. That is the thing. <laughs> That's why, like, this kind of stuff can get people's blood boiling. So, yeah. like, the point of this one is to just talk about trickle-down economics and the theory behind it and why it may or may not work. And um, on the caveat that we don't know and neither do economists. Yeah, I think I, I left this a little frustrated after my research because I thought I would come away with a an answer. <laughs> yeah. um, but, I mean, if you look up Reaganomics, which is another name for Reagan's version of, of the supply-side economics, right. you will find 100 articles, well, more than that, but 100 articles on 
how what a great success it was, and then the abject failure of Reaganomics. And no one is going to agree. I looked at some of these theories and said, well, that makes sense in an ideal world. Right. Then I look at the opposite and think, well, that makes sense in an ideal world. Right. And I don't, I don't know if you, like you said, I don't know if you can, uh, I don't know if there is an answer, even though everyone thinks that they're right. Both people can't be right, both sides. No, it's true because these are very opposite, in most cases, ideas. Yeah, but what I did find was a bunch of articles after digging further that said the, the failures and successes of Reaganomics. And I think to me that's probably a little more accurate because it isn't a black and white situation. Well, the part of the problem is, is if you point to Reagan's tax policies, right? And, and Reagan is, is tied to trickle down economics. Yeah. And we'll get into he, the history. Like, right. We'll clear all this up, but he's not really the first one to, to implement this. No, but he's, he's tied to it. But if you look at Reaganomics, the problem is this, Chuck. If, if you say, well, the nineties were very prosperous. We had the dot com boom. Sure. Um, and the, the, uh, Budget we, surplus. The NASDAQ yeah. hit like, like a record 10,000 points at, at, like in the nineties. All, all of that was from Reagan's policies. Well, you can't say that that was from Reagan's policies. We, we don't know. We just simply don't know. Yeah. Was it something short term that the Clinton administration was doing or was it the long term effects yeah. of Reagan's tax cuts? Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. And we're going to get scores of email from people saying what we do know. Right. But we don't No. So just send your email. That's fine. But <laughs> you're wrong. Uh, well, I guess we should go ahead and say, too, that just the name uh, trickle down was coined by Will Rogers famous humorist in the 1920s. It is not a 1980s thing. It had been around for a while. Right. And uh, he said, quote, the money was all appropriated for the top in hopes that it would trickle down to the needy. And that's where it started to get its uh, a derogatory uh, feel around that name. For sure, since yeah. the 20s. And, and over time, um, especially since the 80s, the the people who champion trickle down economics or this this particular version of trickle down tax policy yeah. have tried to distance themselves from the term trickle down right because it does seem elitist and it seems like a big wealth transfer which in fact it is um it, let's let's talk about this trickle down policy isn't necessarily um associated with Reagan's tax cuts. Right. The whole idea behind trickle down, as I said already, is you take wealth and you give it to the wealthiest people. That's that's what's done. Yeah. It's a wealth transfer, and it's usually done at a time when uh, you're in an economic slump, so you're hoping to revitalize things. Yeah, it's the government trying to smooth out the rough spots in the national economy, like AKA recessions. Yeah. Um, so you're transferring wealth. You're transferring wealth, though, on the premise that that money is going to be reinvested, reinvigorated. Right. Used to reinvigorate the economy, yep. right? So it is a wealth transfer. But with the one we're talking about today, specifically, um, we're talking about Reagan's version. So it's a wealth transfer through tax cuts. Yes. Right? Yes. So when Reagan came into office, uh, he took over a tax policy where the highest tax rate was like 70%. Like yeah. The highest earners were paying 70% on their highest income. Yeah, and he got that down to about 50. Yeah. Yeah. Which is still seems incredibly high today yeah. in an age where we're paying like 35%. Yeah. The highest earners are. Yeah. 
So the point is, is Reagan did it through tax cuts. Yeah. But the that doesn't mean like trickle down economics don't, doesn't equal tax cuts necessarily. Right, right. It's trickle down. Ways. It's that's that's one way of of putting more money into the hands of the wealthiest people. Right, right. Exactly. Uh, it's really a question of supply and demand, and I guess we can go back uh, through time a little bit to Jean Baptiste Say, who you mentioned, nineteenth mm-hmm. uh, century French economist, and his. His philosophy has been misinterpreted a lot as supply creates its own demand. Yeah. It's not exactly right. Uh, what he was really saying is products are paid for with products, and money just had like a temporary function. Um, yeah, like if you are somebody who produces something, when you produce that something, that yeah. item, when you go make that shoe, yeah, and you're going to sell your shoe, yeah. which is the whole reason you made the shoe in the first place, Sure, and then with that money... You can go use it to buy other goods and services. Right. So the production of that shoe created a wage for you, which in turn stimulated consumption, demand yeah. from you for something else. Yeah. Product is paid for with product. Uh, the misinterpretation that supply creates its own demand is is just a bastardized version, and that basically means that there would never be a failed product. Like you can just produce and produce and produce. Right. Which isn't uh, sound. No, that's insane. And I think Say would have said that right. that is not true as well. Well, he did. He he did um, it, during his lifetime even say like, well, no, I mean, there, it's possible that there is such a thing as overproduction. Sure. I mean, like if you think about it, like during the uh, the housing market crash like, yeah. starting a few years ago, sure, there was a glut of homes on the market. And it's not like the people who are building homes just merrily went on building homes and building homes and building homes. Like yeah. once the demand ceased, they stopped producing yeah, and well, we still had a glut on the market. Yeah. And the ones who were still just sinking money into build, like building just stopped basically. Yeah. And it was because there was an oversupply because demand had ceased. So the idea that, that if you, if you produce it, demand will come on a short term basis. Is this kind of a fallacy? Yeah, but in the earlier days of this country, a lot of uh, big thinkers agreed with him, Yeah, uh, like Jefferson. Um, but the tide turned later on in our country with uh, the introduction of Mr. Keynes, Keynesian economics. Yeah, so... Which we talked about in our audio book. Yeah, we did. Stuff you should know, super stuff guide to the economy. Yeah, which is probably super outdated. I wonder. But there are some... I think there's some evergreen content in there. Yeah. I mean, it was like an economics 101 course. Yeah, that's true. With us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so so the basis of Say's law is that if you stimulate um, production, yeah, then you'll get the economy going again. And it was implemented for a while. Like some of the some of the early 20th century presidents like uh, Hoover, among others. Yeah. Like uh, Harding and Coolidge. Yeah. JFK. Well, JFK later, but early on yeah, yeah. in the 20th century, Harding and Coolidge both implemented um, this kind of what's called supply-side policy, tax yeah. policy. Say's law. Right, where, the, where if you stimulate production through uh, lowering uh, taxes at the top, and we'll, we'll tell you in a second how those two are correlated, yeah. um, you can get the economy going again. Well, Hoover also followed the same policy, and under Hoover's watch, the Great Depression happened. Yeah, which would cause any just regular thinking person, even if they don't understand economics, to think, hey, we're doing it wrong. Right. 
So Roosevelt came along. That's right. Roosevelt held the opposite view, and he was very much a Keynesian. And he was operating at the same time that Keynes was writing and, and working himself. And John Maynard Keynes said, no, 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 you guys have it backwards. Yeah. It, you don't stimulate the supply. You stimulate the demand. Then all of a sudden, if you have a housing glut and you suddenly have people who have more money to spend, yeah. they'll take care of your housing glut and then things can get back to normal. We reach e- equilibrium again. Yeah. He was about uh, short-term ideas, short-term fixes, mm-hmm. maybe lower interest rates. Uh, maybe uh, taxes, uh, fiscal policy, taxes and spending, basically what you hear a lot about these days. It, you know, Keynesian economics kind of lasted a long time until probably Kennedy and then Reagan. Right. It's like there's only been a handful of U.S. presidents who really endorse the trickle-down theory. Yeah. Like, like wholeheartedly. Since the 20th century, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's the, the Keynesian policies ruled, and it was very much about, like, Cutting taxes for the lower and middle and working classes, increasing taxes for the rich, because if you if you're a government, you still need revenue, right? Sure. So you can't just cut taxes for everybody. If you cut taxes for one group, you kind of need to increase it for another because you still need your money coming in. Yeah. Of course, you could also take the radical step of figuring out how to eliminate waste and bloat in government. That would help a lot. But we're not talking about that in this one. No, we're talking about trickle down economics. That's right. So then along comes Kennedy, who says, hey, er, uh, my dad was er, pretty rich, so I'm kind of thinking that this trickle-down thing might work. Right. So he got into supply-side economics. And then when Reagan came along, he really championed this whole idea. And it was out of a result of some guys in the 70s saying, um, there's this whole other thing that we've been ignoring which is this trickle-down tax policy that we should implement. And they, they got Reagan into it, and he implemented it. Yeah, and uh, after this message break coming up here in a sec, we are going to talk a little bit about, if it doesn't sound like it makes sense to you, there's a certain curve that we'll explain that might clear it up for you. Hey, everyone. Host Nora McInerney is back for Season 2 of The Head Start. Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep. Along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. 
Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887, and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. All right, so uh, we're going to talk about the Laffer Curve, which was also in Ferris Bueller. Oh, was it? Yeah, he says Laffer Curve, but it, in high school I had no idea. what. No. I was like, what are those words together? Well, I don't understand. Yeah. Laffer was a person, L-A-F-F-E-R. And um, the, the Laffer Curve helps explain a little bit why trickle-down economics could possibly work. Is that a good neutral way to say that? I would say so. <laughs> uh, the idea of the Laffer cur- Curve is that uh, the relationship between taxes and revenues is a curve instead of a direct relationship. Yeah. So at a certain point, let's say you own a company making shoes mm-hmm. and you gross $10 million through like the first two financial quarters. Right. And you're taxed at, let's say, 50%. And you know if you make any more money, then you're going to jump up into that 90% mm-hmm. tax uh tax category, Mm -hmm. you might slow down production. You might halt production altogether and say, you know what, I'm going to take off the rest of the year. Right. Maybe even put these people out of work for four to six months. Furlough. Furlough. And because I don't want to be taxed anymore. So if you look at that on a graph, Mm -hmm. it's going to be, if you tax people 100%, they're not going to work. If you tax people 0%, you're not getting any money. So in the middle of there is the curve. Right. It, it basically Laffer's curve suggests that the correlation between um, tax rates and tax revenue is not totally positive. No. At some point, it starts to go back down. Yeah, that's called the prohibitive range. At a certain point, people don't want to be taxed in that range. Yeah, and it's not even necessarily that they are not working any longer because they resent being taxed. Yeah. What Laffer was pointing out is that there is this prohibitive range, and within the prohibitive range, um, you remove the incentive to work theoretically. Right. Where, um, and Jay McGrath, who wrote this, uh, t- gave a pretty good um, example where it's like if you make that money yeah. and you are taxed 50%. That's tolerable. You're still going to make. You still get to keep fifty percent for yourself. Right. But when you're taxed in that ninetieth percentile, uh, you're. Let's say you're going to make another million dollars. You have to give nine hundred thousand of it to the government, and you just get to keep a hundred thousand. Well, you might decide to just go and spend the rest of the year at your beach house yeah. with the money that you did make. Not because you resent being taxed, but because it's just not worth it to yeah. to exert that effort to make that next million dollars when you just get to keep a hundred thousand of it. So at that point, in that prohibitive range, the tax policy is effectively uh, keeping people from working, inducing them to not work any longer, yeah. which is bad for an economy. And that's if your if your work if your income is directly related to your work. Right. But, you could conceivably, if you owned a factory or something, yeah. and you didn't have to really exert any problems, yeah. and you could still make payroll and all of that stuff, yeah. it might be worth it to just leave it to these other people to make that extra $100,000 for you, yeah. it, rather than go off to the beach house. But if you your effort directly yeah. 
um, is taxed, then yes, it would become a, a disincentive toward work. Yeah. Conceivably, we should point out, Chuck, and Jane didn't do a very good job of doing that in this in this article. Laffer's curve is a, a thought experiment. Right. It's not based on data. Right. It's not um, a hard and fast rule or a law. It's yeah. basically an intuitive idea of tax rates and their effect on tax revenue. Yeah, but if you don't even have to be a business owner. Let's say you're just a regular employee that makes a salary. Mm-hmm. You have a salary sweet spot as well. Yeah. You know, if you, it's great to get promotions and to get raises, but if you're really climbing the ladder at a certain point, you might think, man, I got a big raise and I'm making barely any more money than I made before this big promotion right. because I've been kicked into a higher tax bracket. So that's the prohibitive range and it you know can apply to you. I mean, you can't you don't stop working. No, but you may say, uh, but, yeah. I don't actually want that promotion because exactly. it's going to be more responsibility and really not much more money. So right. I'm going to hang out right here rather than keep going. Yeah, in my little 20% range or whatever it is. Right. So that's Laffer's curve. Yes. And that's a, it's a kind of the basis of trickle down tax policy. It's the idea that, okay, there is a point where you can tax too much and now you're actually slowing down the economy. So based on Laffer's curve, when you're looking at it through, um, through trickle down policy. Yeah. There's a point then that's that like you said there's a sweet spot as far as tax revenue goes. Yeah. And it creates this seeming paradox where if you cut tax rates at a certain point, yeah. you'll actually increase tax revenue. Yeah, uh, because people will be incentivized to work more right. throughout the year. Yeah. And the other basis of trickle down theory is that you are going to put more money or keep more money with the people at the wealthiest people yeah. who under this idea are more likely to um, invest it. Right. Back and, into the economy. Right. And when they do that, supposedly, allegedly, the economy uh, booms. Yeah. What you can't account for is just the single person. This is looked at in the broadest terms because mm-hmm. somebody could make all their money and just sit on it. In the bank, uh, which isn't reinvesting it. That is a really, really, really big point. Yeah. You'll remember back at the beginning of this recession, the Fed was doing everything it could to cheapen lending. Yeah. And still has been. And uh, it didn't do anything. Yeah. Like, lending come on, still guys. dried up. Come on. Like you have to take into account things like um, insecurity. Yeah. Fear. Um just being human yes being human like we're not necessarily rationally maximizing actors humans are like there is such thing as fear and uh, the idea that maybe hoarding money is best so what's possible then if you follow this trickle-down tax policy is you're taking money from everybody else and giving it to the rich or if your head just spun because you're a fiscal conservative, right? what you're doing is allowing the rich to keep more of their income, but they're not doing anything with it. Right. At least as a short-term fix, that's not a good idea. Because you can probably bet that eventually the rich are going to take that money and invest it back in the economy. But it's to not make necessarily... More money. Yes. Yeah. But when's that going to happen? You can't really say. And right. part of the other problem with it is is that 
you are then also basically handing money out at a fire sale. You're saying, hey, here's a bunch of money. Invest it back in the economy. And have we mentioned the bargain basement rates you can get right. on all of these businesses <laughs> over here because the economy's in a recession? Yeah. It's so, like an infomercial. Yeah, very much so, you yeah. know, and it's it's like it is literally a wealth transfer. And under some circumstances, like the recession that we're still coming out of now, yeah. it is a wealth transfer and an asset transfer in yeah. that the, the people who have the most money, the wealthy, also have the most buying power and they have the best bargains. Yeah, Thomas Sowell is a, is an economist and he... Um, he won't call it trickle down economics because he thinks it literally benefits the workers immediately and first because in the idealized version, they're going to reinvest. And the very first thing that's going to happen is they're going to put people to work and people are going to have jobs. Uh, so, yeah, he, you won't. He's not going to call it trickle-down theory because he thinks it works literally the opposite way. No, he, I read a column in the National Review by him, and he's like, you'll never find a, a legitimate economist, um, a history of economic theories and policies and analysis. You'll never find trickle-down economics anywhere. Yeah. Like it drives him crazy that people call it that because it has such a, um, a negative association, an elitist Wealthy sure. association. Yeah. And, you know, when you, if you're during election time or during, uh, if you see these big tax cuts for the wealthy, if it makes your blood boil because you think they're, these people are obviously in the hip pocket of the politician, that may be true, but you can still remove yourself from that and look at the theory itself and does it work or does it not. And we will do that uh, after this message. Hey everyone, host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbV. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep, along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. 
and you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887, and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. So, Chuck, let's let's do just that um, passionless <laughs> rundown of wh- how a trickle down supply side tax policy works. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be passionless with me because I have no idea. I like <laughs> I'm, I can't argue hard for any side. Yeah, because I read so many articles disputing one another completely. Yeah. that I have no idea. So, okay, so you're we're in a recession. Yeah, and there's a discussion. Is it supply or demand that you want to stimulate? Well, with supply-side economics, trickle-down is what you call it in the vernacular. Sure. uh, You want to stimulate the supply. Yeah. Because under this belief, if you stimulate the supply, the the people who are producing stuff will have stuff for sale and people will buy it. And more money will enter the economy and things will get back to normal. Yes. Because the the basis of this is that people still work during recessions. And since they're working, they have money to buy things. Not everybody's working, but you can handle the idea that not everybody's working by getting production going again because that creates jobs. Yeah. And that in turn generates even more income. That okay. was passionless. So how do you do that? Well done. According to trickle-down supply-side tax policy, you cut the tax rates of the wealthiest people. You incentivize them to keep working harder and harder sure. because they get to keep more and more of it themselves Yeah. on the hope that rather than keeping it themselves, yeah. hoarding, they will inject it into the economy through things like investing expanding their businesses, yeah, hiring more people, opening new businesses, and taking that investment and making more money themselves. Yeah. But in the meantime, spreading the wealth around through things like wages and tax revenues. Through minimum wages. (laughs) So that is supply side tax policy. Uh And whether it works or not, the jury's still out. I did find uh, something from um, fareconomy.org, which I have to say I don't know whether they're nonpartisan or liberal. They definitely didn't strike me as conservative, but um, so take it however you want. But they took the um, tax rates, yeah, the top tax rate, and its changes from 1954 to 2002. And they took the changes to that top tax, top tax rate. Yeah. The highest tier. Yeah. Which is the one you're supposed to cut under this this type of tax policy, and they um, juxtaposed it against four different economic indicators: growth in the gross domestic product, which is kind of like the indicator of the overall health of the economy; uh, income growth rate, which is you know how the average American's wealth grows. Yeah. Um, I think changes to unemployment and the growth of the hourly wage. 
And they found that the correlation was basically statistically non-existent. Yeah. That when you lower tax rates or raise tax rates, but specifically in this case, when you lower the highest tax rate, yeah. it does nothing to improve the GDP, to improve hourly wages, to improve median wealth. Um, it just, just statistically speaking, over the course of this 1954 to 2002, yeah. lowering the tax rates did nothing for those things. Yeah. So speaking from that end, you can say, well, it doesn't really do anything. Yeah. Well, with, with Reaganomics, I think, uh, well, again, I say most people agree, but no one agrees. Uh, it did help inflation if he was, it was because of his policies. But tax revenues didn't see much change at all under those policies. Uh, we're not even getting into, you know, the part of Reaganomics where he kind of shut down trade with a lot of countries. Yeah. Keep it in house. Right. And the effect that had. And I, I've gotten varying answers on how long after a presidency can you even look back and with a good judgment. Right. Um, of like the policies really take effect 10 years later is when you're going to see. Or no, it's more like 20 years. Or no, you can see it immediately with short-term fixes. Right. So it's the whole thing is very frustrating because yeah. no one agrees. Everyone thinks they're right. Yeah, that's the frustrating part is everybody thinks they're right. Like Obama's policies are almost virtually the exact opposite of Reagan's. Well, that's funny you say that because that's not necessarily true. He In a lot of ways they are. Well, he in that he kept the Bush era tax cuts going he's actually well that's true kept lower um tax rates than reagan did and uh reagan's always pegged with the trickle down economic theory right yeah obama's got this other one going it's called quantitative easing yeah so with reagan it was trickle down tax policy under obama it's trickle down monetary policy and by pumping money into the markets through the fed yeah it's actually helping because of this income inequality. It's helping the wealthiest Americans right. by far without anything trickling down really to the um, lower working and middle class Americans. So trickle down policy doesn't necessarily just mean tax policy. Yeah. It can also mean monetary policy. And we've got a um, very specific trickle-down policy being carried out under Obama's entire two terms so far through quantitative easing. Either way, there's a vast transfer of wealth going on right now, just as there was in the 80s. Yeah, I'd suggest people read up on their own if they want to jump in this argument. This one kind of also, once you really start looking into it, especially if you go beyond, like, what helps and really step back and look at what's being done yeah. and the effects of it, forget, you know, well, my, my idea is the best way to, to cure a recession theoretically. Like if you, if you just get out of that mindset and you look at economic policies and you look at them through uh, the lens of income inequality, yeah. uh, then suddenly conservative and liberal and, and Democrat and Republican all just kind of fade away. Yeah. And basically everybody has reason to, feel like they're being talked out of something very valuable. Yeah. I came up with an idea. I'm sure I'm not the first person to come up with it. Uh-oh. Joshonomics? I wonder <laughs> if if you did cut down on the tax rates for the wealthy mm-hmm. to, to about where they are now. 
Uh, this this is like bargain basement tax rates, frankly. 35%. It used to be at 90% in the 60s. Yeah. 90 was the highest. Now it's 35. Well, it and much of the 50% world. 50% under Reagan. Yeah, much of the world pays a lot more taxes than we do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So 35%, I think, is fair for everybody, uh, you, you, to say the least, if not unfair, because it's so low. Right. But let's say that it's fair. Uh, you keep the tax rates low on the wealthiest earners. And you let them build up as much money as they want in their lifetime. Okay. But when they die, you tax their estate like there is no tomorrow. Uh, yeah. And I wonder, first of all, uh-huh. you increase revenue. Sure. But you also prevent dynasties. Uh, you want to prevent dynasties? Sure. I read an article about how um, the those who inherit wealth tend to invest it less. They tend to hoard it more. Because they didn't yeah. have any means of accumulating wealth other than a windfall. I think if you just look at it statistically speaking, and you look at rather than, again, on an individual yeah. basis, if you look overall when wealth is inherited rather than earned, yeah. the inherited wealth is less often invested in ways like um, that create new jobs than the wealth that's earned. And yeah. it's the same thing. Like if you won the lottery or something like that. You should be terrified of losing that money because you didn't do anything to earn it. So there's no guarantee whatsoever that you will ever earn that money or have that money again once you spend it. If you amass a fortune in industry and lose it, you did it once, there's a likelihood that you could go do it again. Yeah. But so you're more work, likely to take more risks with that wealth. But people work to take care of their families for generations to come. Like that's what their goal is. Right. So let's say you have a $100 million estate. Okay. Okay. And you have uh, one kid, and your estate is taxed at 90% when you die. Okay. Your kid still gets $10 million. If your kid yeah. inherited $10 million, yeah. you're a wealthy person, and your kid inherits $10 million, I think you can get your um, eternal rest easy, knowing that your kid's going to be okay with the $10 million bucks for the rest of his or her life. I think that's fair. Yeah. That's enough to set them up in business for sure. That's enough of a leg up that most people don't have. I, uh, that's fine. You don't have to agree with me. I'm yeah. Just, I'm I think just it's, saying. I think it's uh, like when I hear about, uh, Bill Gates is only going to leave his kids so much money or whoever. Was it Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or someone? They both are, they pledged like a significant amount of their, their estates. Right. To not to get, leave it, just leave that to their children. I think that's that's great, but I think that's like it should be a person's choice, and the government shouldn't make that decision for them. Like government making decisions like that just that makes my blood boil. But that's tax policy, man. Like they can make that decision while you're alive or yeah. when you die. It's still their, your income being taxed. And yeah. either way, it's like are they taxing your inheritance before your death? Or well, but. It, it isn't tax policy because Joshonomics isn't. No, but the very fact that there are taxes and that yeah. it's progressive means that the wealthiest people pay more. The more you earn, the more tax you pay. Yeah. So why does it matter whether it's now or when it's when you die? And I, I, I that's not an entirely that's a kind of a glib interpretation because I realize what I'm saying is normal taxes now and then a heavy tax when you die right. to prevent dynasties and to increase revenue. I just don't think it'll disincentivize work. Because I think, I think could, while it's... you're alive, you still want to make money. People, those, The people who are dedicated to amassing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, yeah. 
that's not going to prevent them from making money while they're alive. It's not. You don't think? They're still alive. And their kids still get a slice of the pie. Right. But what about their kids' kids and their kids' kids? Well, then it's up to their kid to go out and through his own effort or her own effort amass their own fortune, just like everybody else's. Everybody gets to start at zero, although those rich kids still get that leg up of 10% of the estate. It's it's just my idea. I got you. Joshonomics. Joshonomics. Man, we are going to get some letters for that one. <laughs> uh, you got anything else? Uh, and hey, let me say that like I think people should be able to live much more meagerly than they do. I, I'm not a proponent of people leading these lavish, wasteful lifestyles, mm-hmm. but I think if you know you've made your money in a legitimate way, then it's your right to do so. I guess. You know. Yeah. I wouldn't want some government putting their hand in my pocket and saying, hey, you worked really hard for all that. Give me 90% of it. Well, I mean, who does? N- nobody wants that. Yeah. Especially when you when you look at government wastefulness or if you don't want to fund war or something like that. Like, then it makes it even harder to bite. Yeah, the whole thing makes me want to drop out and move to an island or someplace in the woods very quiet okay. to where I don't have to even think about any of this stuff. Well, I got my little garden. I got my chickens and my goats. You need to go make some money so you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, want, I want just a little nine-bedroom house <laughs> in on like 120 acres. With the staff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Are we done with this? We are done with trickle-down economics. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, you can read this article on HowStuffWorks.com. Just uh, type trickle-down economics into the search bar. And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this one, The Waiting is the Hardest Part. <laughs> uh, hey, guys, just found your podcast a few months ago, and I love it. Um, the reason I'm thanking you is because I have a bit of a worrying problem. I just sent out my application to dental school, and now I'm playing the waiting game. Uh, through my waiting, I always find myself worrying and wondering what could happen, even though I know it's not the best thing for me. Through my long days at work this summer, listening to you guys really helps me uh, not only take my mind off the process, but helps take the bite off my worrying mind and even makes me laugh out loud while people look at me like I'm on crack. <laughs> Which, by the way, I know all about through your crack podcast. That was a good one. Um, so thanks for what you do. You're informative and uh, your humorous podcast makes my day easier. It helps me through the waiting game and teaches me so much about what I do not know. Uh, by the way, I know it's a long shot, but if by any chance you read this on Listener Mail, please give a shout out to my fiance Elizabeth. We have less than a year before our big day. Ooh. And uh, that is from Caleb Davis in Decatur, uh, I-N. Is that Indiana? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so Caleb, <laughs> I was just making sure there wasn't some new state I didn't know about. Uh, Indaho. Yes. Um, so Caleb and Elizabeth from Indaho, <laughs> congratulations. And Caleb, I hope you get into uh, dental school, my friend. Uh, follow up with us. Doesn't Caleb write us frequently? Is that the Caleb I'm thinking of? No, that is not. Oh, okay. You're thinking of the Caleb that won our contest and had lunch with us. Is that the same Caleb that writes us sometimes? Follows us on Twitter? Yeah, I think so. Oh, well, hey. What's his, well, we won't say his last name. I don't remember. Well, at any rate, thanks to all the Calebs out there who listen. <laughs> we appreciate you all. Right. Uh, if you're named Caleb, or even if you're not, and you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash stuff you should know 
You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com and join us at our home on the web, the beautiful stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.